All right, welcome everyone to the next installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and as always, let's say hello and a warm holiday welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Well, Merry Christmas there to you, Mr. Egan, and uh, Merry Christmas to all our listeners out there. I hope it's going to be a good one. How could it not be good with the SUS News Podcast and Drone TV? You are correct, sir. I forgot about that, but you are correct. It's going to be a great one. Yes, well, I just put uh, filmed another one on, um, let's see, Monday. Put, put some footage in the can. You should probably, I don't know if you've already seen that, but you should be seeing that soon. Yep, <laughs> I believe Robinson. I'll be seeing that tomorrow night. As a matter of fact, you should. And uh, I think today will be um, a second episode will drop on the YouTube channel. And uh, this one is, uh, believe it or not, only educational. Um, talks about being a good neighbor in the NAS. And then also some safety considerations for flying quadcopters with uh, Gus Calderon. We're going to break with tradition and no one gets beat up on in that episode. <laughs> I thought about throwing something in there just for continuity, but then I uh, figured, ah, well, we'll let that go. But anyway, okay, so uh, let's see here. Any news stories um, of value this week that you saw, Gene? Well, uh, as usual, there's plenty to talk about. There, there seems to be a ramping up of activity all across the board. Uh, I understand that the uh, UBSI... Christmas party was last night, and Academy, who is uh, Knee Blackwater, announced that they have received their COA. Good for them. I'm sure they, they're going to put it to good use. You know, there's uh, just, uh, you know, more stuff than you can shake a stick at to, to talk about, and, you know, you just got to figure out which one is the most topical. Well, I'm going to have to go with the uh, 12 FAA business days of Christmas. You know, I thought that was pretty good, but, uh, you know, in your, your usual jocular fashion, you have put it all in perspective in those 12 days. I know. You know, it wasn't like there was really a shortage. Uh, it really writes itself. But uh, I figured, you know, we gotta we got to have a little uh, fun at Christmas, and I'm waiting, and it coincides with the um, announcements of the test site centers, you know. December's ticking away, my friend. What's today, the 18th? Yeah, we're moving toward the end of the year fairly quickly, and um, there were some rumors running around that they might leak one test site out, but uh, then there was, uh, of course, the, the hubbub and the furor over if you did just one, it would give them unfair advantage, which I'm not sure how that would work, but there you go. Uh, well, again, this is a do-no-harm to my holiday vacation. Uh, situation, but I'll give you one. New Mexico State University. Woohoo! Uh, we don't have any uh, hand clapping sounds or party whistles queued up for that one. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, if they don't announce, uh, you know, and the people are, oh, okay, well, you're kind of critical. But if they don't announce in December when they kick this can down the road again, I mean, are are you going to be well? Personally, I can't talk for you, but for myself, I, I will not believe one word they have to say. It'll be show me from here well, on out. 
Well, it would be administratively consistent. So it would be, but we've been guaranteed that it was going to be a more open and, and public process and that they could be held accountable to their word and all the rest of that. So, you know, we'll see if that happens. If not, it, that's going to not going to bode well for the industry. But anyway, uh, you know, I don't want to be all doom and gloom in this joyous season. So, you know, what would any other news stories that weren't, um, let's say, that were encouraging and exciting caught your attention? You know, there, there are more. You start to you start to see more positive stuff. I think. Uh, I think we're starting to see more first responder things that are coming out. You're. You're, you're seeing more fire departments that are starting to get more vocal about being able to use the technology, which is, you know, we've always said that that's, that's a good place to go. And uh, then, of course, you're seeing more and more vineyards and, and more and more agribusiness looking at this thing. And I, I think that that's going to be some of the impetus that we need going into 2014 to add that additional pressure. And there's just been a string of stories like that. I'm sure you've noticed. Yeah, well, and then that kind of leads us into our our guest today in the, in the show program, uh, Aggie Air. Um, we're going to talk about agriculture, and you know, I mean, people are really talking about it. Woo, you know, and I've 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 uh, talked about how some people are saying it's the biggest thing since the plow and all the rest of that, and forced agri- agricultural revolution and and things like that. So what we're going to do going to bring on our, our guest, Dr. Mac McKee from Utah State University. Hello, Dr. McKee. Uh, hello, Patrick. I uh, appreciate the chance to be on your program. Well, we appreciate you being on the program because, I'm, I'm, you know, what we try and do at the SUS News is, and, and, you know, I don't know if you're a regular reader, but we try and, let's say, disseminate uh, quality information to the community globally. And uh, the reason that we'd want to have somebody like you on is you have some empirical knowledge of operating these systems for um, agriculture. So without further ado, maybe you could uh, introduce yourself to the audience, little bio, and how you came to be involved with unmanned aircraft systems. Uh, Sure. Uh, I am the director of the Utah Water Research Laboratory. This is a large research organization. We have over 200 people, faculty, staff, and students, engaged in uh, a wide range of research, all related to water and environmental kinds of problems. Uh, About seven years ago, we uh, needed some high-resolution, high-resolution in both space and time, Uh, remote sensing capability, and there really wasn't much that was affordable. Uh, So being uh, not at all knowledgeable about UAVs, we figured, how hard could this be? We'll just do it ourselves. (laughs) And and started building our own UAVs, and uh, we're stubborn enough to stick with it until now we have uh, uh, a full operation. We have more than 30 people involved in our UAV development team and uh, deployment teams uh, engaged um, around the clock, it seems like. It's hard to chase these guys out of the laboratory. So we've been in this business now for more than seven years, and, and uh, currently, uh, or recently, I was, I was uh, named as a member of 
an advisory board to my state's governor on uh, small UAS systems, uh, especially with respect to the FAA uh, bid that uh, Utah is competing for that you mentioned earlier. So, the test sites. Yes, the test sites. Um, we believe that in the small UAS area, for those doing uh, scientific-grade research, uh, in, in, in water and natural resources. We believe that we've amassed more hours of autonomous flight and acquired more terabytes of orthorectified imagery than anybody else. Really? Now, with that, um, and I, you know, I don't want to, I'm just wondering, now you've, so you've logged all these hours of flights and everything else, uh, and you, you kept pretty good records of all this stuff? Yes. Absolutely. And has ever anyone ever asked you and said, "Hey, do you have any data about your flight hours and what you've done?" Just curious. We we it's it's interesting. From time to time, we will get a grandma request uh, that is handled by the central administration here at the university, and uh, usually the, the the questions we get are not that detailed in in, in those kinds of things. Uh, we do keep a record of flight time for each aircraft and f basically for each part on each aircraft. So we can answer those questions, but no one's ever really asked that I'm aware of. Well, and I'm, you know, a lot of these questions, too, that I run through um, are, let's say, reoccurring questions. I'm not trying to put you in the hot seat, but, you know, there's uh, over, you know, I mean, you're a scientist. Okay, so, you know, over the years, um, I, you know, Gene and I have probably been with this about 10 years. And um, Gene, would you say it's fair that we've heard the, the data collection question more than a few times? I believe that was the primary question that they had back in Reno when we, were, we met in Reno the first time. I think it was 2006. I and, think that uh, was five, wasn't it? 2005, was it? I, you know, I think so. All the years run together. They just flown by. But, uh, yeah, they, uh, the big thing for establishment of UA in the NAS was a collection of data, and, and that's why it's very curious that as much as you've done, as much flying as, as you have, have done, Dr. McKee, that uh, we, we thought that there would be a lot more interest in, in the data that you collect, not only from an agricultural standpoint, but also from uh, an operations standpoint, because I'm sure that by now, you probably have a very finely honed operation that goes out and is uh, set up efficiently and, and flies your aircraft uh, effectively, produces the data, uh, gets back down on the ground, and you're off the field and ready to go, right? Uh, absolutely. We have um, actually now a couple of different flight crews. Uh, we're staffed up so that if we need to, we can send at least two crews in different directions. And there are protocols, there are checklists that uh, uh, are, are adhered to mm -hmm. for each launch and each mm -hmm. flight yep. and so on and so forth. So um, uh, some of the kind of data you're talking about in terms of performance and, and mission safety and, and other kinds of related issues, uh, some of those data are probably out there and available if you know who to ask and if they're at liberty to share the information with you. Hmm. All right. Well, well like I said, oh, sorry, go ahead, Gene. Well, I, I just wanted to, can I ask a real kind of sticky question? Uh, I was just wondering, um, have you had any in-flight failures or, or, 
Can, can you do you know what the frequency is of uh, you know equipment failures or anything like that? Just I mean it doesn't have to be you know it, it's this percentage, but you know there's just kind of a a swag at it. I mean, have your aircraft been you know ninety percent reliable, ninety five percent reliable? You know, do you have a, a feel for that? Uh, I, well, I would guess it's the reliability is much higher than that. I'm I'm trying to think. Um, our flight crews reported. Uh, one wing failure here a, a, a while back. Um, it, it sort of depends on on what what mode of operation you're you're asking about. Our sure. R and D team, uh, we're with the R and D team. We're continually trying new things, uh, new sure. uh, uh, new software, new materials, and so forth, and. Um, they almost sort of intentionally find where the envelope is, and to do that, sometimes a plane goes down. Uh, but uh, in in terms, and and we we fly under a COA here in uh, near the university for those kinds of purposes. Um, for applications, uh, we have where we're in the field to acquire scientific grade data on a real mission, on a real flight to, to um, serve a real purpose uh, beyond just learning how to fly better airplanes, uh, we have never experienced a flight failure. That's, that's what I was looking for from an operational standpoint. I understand the R&D, and that's what you're supposed to do is, is push the limit until something breaks. I was more interested in the operational end of it, and I am not surprised to hear that answer. Well, we we work really hard. Uh, our our flight team, our field team that goes out to acquire real data for real research projects, uh, they work with our R and D team, and um, we don't. It's it's sort of uh, no wine until it's ready. We don't bring anything new out of the R and D side until our field guys really, really, really think it's it's ready to go to the field and then we we test it and test it and test it so um, uh, it it uh, the, the likelihood of failure in the field uh, we take very seriously of minimizing that hmm. well and that's you know we kind of led you down the road but this is this is kind of a reoccurring everything you're telling us is kind of a reoccurring theme uh, in, in the community that we interview but I, and it's great to hear all of that. But let's let's get down into because uh, this stuff ticks off pretty quick. We're already 15 minutes in, and it just seems like we just started the conversation. But let's let's talk about some of the the types of missions you fly with these small unmanned aircraft systems. You're doing more than ag, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we got into this because of ag. Turns out, ag is the hardest problem to pick. So. We we showed our ignorance from the first day by jumping into the one that's most difficult to resolve. Um, along the way, though, we've learned a lot, and we've had projects that uh, have have found our aircraft very valuable uh, in in the water and natural resources research areas. For example, uh, we've flown a number of flights. Uh, Using using the aircraft to acquire imagery to track the spread of 
of an invasive reed species called Phragmites australis across wetlands here in northern Utah. Uh, this is a, a very uh, habitat-threatening species. It's invasive, a big, tall reed. And it's taking over North American wetlands in, in really aggressive ways. And one of the biggest problems they have is figuring out where it is. Uh, by the time you see it with Landsat, it's too late. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so our aircraft have been used to, to uh, acquire imagery that has been analyzed by uh, pattern recognition software that we have also developed here. Uh, so that uh, at better than 95% accuracy and at 25 centimeter resolution, we can tell you where that stuff is. Hmm. And, then, and, and then the managers of the systems can uh, try different management approaches, and we can fly again and tell them how it worked and, and so forth. So in wetlands, in, in uh, river morphology, uh, where you're worried about sandbars moving around and and uh, where you might be worried about things like riparian habitat and in-stream habitat, uh, uh, just a huge number of applications uh, that, that Aggie Air has been fortunate to, uh, to enjoy here. Uh, we've actually been flying applications now. It took us two years to develop our first ready-for-the-field aircraft, so we've been flying on applications for about five years. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So um, now you're okay. So you're doing all this different work and uh, with these things. What what types of systems are you using? We use paparazzi for our autopilot, mm -hmm. and and um, of course the the platform we use is our own. Uh, development. It's called Aggie Air. Actually, we're flying a second-generation fixed wing. We're also experimenting with uh, our own design uh, vertical takeoff and landing systems as well. Um, we have used Paparazzi because it's open source and for some of the payloads that we have in mind, uh, it will be necessary for our onboard payload computer to be able to talk with the flight control computer and get it to change its mind about what has to happen next, uh, literally on the fly. So uh, we've, we've used an open source, and uh, we continue to experiment in terms of platform with, with different types of materials, composites, and, and change sizes of payload bays because we have to accommodate different payloads and so forth. So it's it's very much a work in progress. So, but it's it's mainly it's uh, home brewed systems. You're not you're not using any systems that were said handed down by the federal government. No, no, it's it's no, it's it's entirely our own creation. All right, excellent. And so it's kind of a, a let's say family affair at the university. Yes, uh, a large family now, but yes. Um, uh, and, and we have colleagues uh, in Texas and, and California who have um, leased Aggie Air aircraft from us and are flying them for their research programs as well. Excellent, excellent. That's what I like to hear. Um, but just out of curiosity, because you said you were doing some, some water projects, have you... Have you have you seen some of the work that uh, UC Merced is doing with some quadcopters that uh, I guess they're using them to land in the water and take samples? Have you seen any of that work? 
Uh, yes, I've been to UC Merced. Uh, one of one of our colleagues is a good friend of mine there at UC Merced, Yang Quan Chen. That's and him. Uh, <laughs> water water quality sampling and so forth with with uh, a VTOL uh, is one of the ideas that they've been pushing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I. We are in a new industry here. I, I liken the, the SUAS industry today to the Wright brothers in about 1904. Um, uh, it, it took six years bef- between the time of their first flight and the time they got their first contract. And uh, here we have this wonderful piece of technology, and what the heck is it we're going to do with it? And so a lot of people are trying to come up with ideas for what can we do with this stuff. And Yang Quan Chen is one of those creative guys looking for ideas. Yeah, I, I met him uh, actually up here in Sacramento. He came up to uh, testify to the state legislature when they were talking about uh, introducing some legislation to restrict the use of unmanned aircraft, and it's too bad. I mean, he, you know, he's a scientist. He came up here. He's trying to talk about, you know, the good uses of this, and they're asking him if, uh, you know, these predator drones can see through walls and stuff like. It was, it was really kind of a. He was like, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, you want to talk about my field? I can tell you, I don't know about that. So what? Do, I know that was just a total waste of time, but. It was a good, it wasn't a waste of time because I got to meet him and talk about what he's doing. And we have a lot of uh, issues with, let's say, agricultural runoff into the, uh, you know, the water system here and the uh, Sacramento Bay Delta and all the rest of that. I'm sure you guys face some of those same problems um, in in Utah. Yes. Well, um, Utah will not be a a state where precision agriculture and UAVs get going real fast. Uh, California will, maybe Texas. All part of that depends on on how laws, how restrictive the laws become. Uh, but where where ag will happen quickly is uh, is with high valued agriculture, and there's not very much of that in Utah. There is in California. So well, we see it happening there uh, earliest. Well, now, you know, I wanted to talk about that because I wanted to talk about, you know, as we moved into second, <clears throat> the second segment here, I wanted to talk about some of those viability issues, you know. And, you know, this technology, there's different sensors. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. People, you know, nobody's ever thought of doing aerial, you know, surveying for crops. <laughs> Till UAVs came along, and these sensors are only for UAVs, which is it's kind of a big misnomer through the whole public. Uh, and the same with the privacy issues, is they believe that all these sensors are all brand new and were made exclusively for drones and only work with drones or unmanned aircraft systems. Most people, if you say unmanned aircraft system, they look at you and go, what? Uh, it's drone. a drone. Yeah. yeah, okay, I know what you're talking about. <clears throat> Works better. Um but there are viability issues. And, you know, you were talking about some of the higher value crops. And maybe, you know, you, you, you can uh, hit on this because I think that all people, well, not all people, but there's a broad brush with the ag thing that, you know, like, oh, you know, wheat, you're going to make millions, soybeans, you're going to make a gazillion dollars on soybeans. Or most of these crops, don't they have like razor thin margins? The... Uh the the value to agriculture will come 
first in the reduction of cost of production, not mm-hmm. in the increase in yield. Uh, so input, and, and, and that's and that's very common for new technologies of all kinds introduced to agriculture. You reduce costs and and therefore increase profits a little bit. Uh, generally, you don't increase yields. Um, and and what we will see is the earliest introduction of UAV systems in agriculture in areas where profit margins are relatively larger and where uh, the value of the crop itself is high, and hence areas where uh, the additional cost of valuable information is outweighed by the, the reduction of cost of production. And, and so things like certain kinds of orchard crops and grapes um, uh, and you know, things like citrus and, and uh, almonds and so forth, those are where we expect to see this technology take hold first. Right. Well, and that's uh, kind of interesting, too. I mean, you know, Northern, I'm in Northern California, and the nuts, uh, if you talk to the farmers here, the nuts seem to be uh, a crop that makes money. Uh, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a, a, a vineyard here in California. I mean, it's just right. everywhere in Northern California. <laughs> there's, there's, there's probably grapes. I could look out the window and see grapes. But, um, you know, some of those, uh, I think the cost versus value is one of the things. But I don't think that people in this industry also realize how um, automated and, let's say, how farming is getting, let's say, uh, more technology savvy. I hear that uh, tractors are collecting data. Um, and they're plotting this data for, let's say, the next next year's rotation of crops and areas that may be deficient in fertilizers and whatever else. Can, can you speak to that at all? Yes, there are um, automated systems uh, produced now by a number of different manufacturers. Uh, uh, in terms of, you mentioned tractors. John Deere and Case and others have smart tractors that, that are are capable of knowing where they are on the surface surface of the planet very accurately and capable of following some sort of program to uh, accomplish certain well-defined tasks. Uh, that is there. But, but those, uh, again, you will see those introduced, that, those kinds of technologies introduced in areas where, where margins uh, are, are higher. You will not find many of those in Utah, for example, uh, where we grow low-valued alfalfa and feed grains. Um, as you said, uh, relative to corn and soybeans, uh, we're a ways in time from, from when uh, this sort of intelligence is going to pay for itself with low-valued crops. Mm. Now, I just wanted to interject because I know that uh, Gene has got to, uh, he's doing some more testing today. So Gene, I wanted to let you jump in here before you got to blast off and anything you'd like to ask. <laughs> or maybe Gene already blasted off. I don't know. It sounds like he's, uh, he's in orbit now. <laughs> yeah, well, he had, uh, I'm sorry there, about that. Uh, I'm here. I'm uh, unfortunately, I, I was I was directing a, a setup there real quick, but uh, yes, I do do have to drop off now. Uh, the one thing that I, I did want to, uh, uh, to to make comment on is that years ago, 
uh, there were several large agribusiness companies out there that were, were looking at unmanned aircraft. Have, have you seen any of the larger agribusiness uh, conglomerations uh, approach you for this sort of technology yet? We have not seen seen such. Uh, years ago, I think that there were probably some missing parts. Um, uh, there, there always have been issues of, of uh, FAA uh, permission to fly and, and right. so forth. That right. our experience has, has been that that scared a lot of the market off. Uh, technologically, also, we've seen advances in. Oh, things like battery power and uh, intelligence of software and so forth. Uh, even even in the seven years we have been in this business, there have been tremendous advances. And so, uh, you don't have to go back very many years before uh, you get to a point in time where it was just very scary and maybe not something that you want to bet the farm on, so to speak. Uh, we're 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 starting to get past that now, but but very slowly. Agriculture will be an early adopter, I think, in in areas where precision agriculture makes sense and high valued crops. But even so, uh, because of slim margins and because of the uncertainty in which agriculture resides, you've you've got weather uncertainty, you've got financial uncertainty, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be a natural risk averseness in agriculture. And and, uh, the further you get from corporate farms and the closer you get to mom-and-pop private farms, the more risk averse the farmers will become. And and it it makes total sense. Um, And and so it's going to be a, a not overnight kind of adoption, I think, for this technology. This is going to take a few years. And there's a huge amount we don't know how to do yet, at least not very well scientifically. It's going to take a while to figure that out. We're, we're as, as I said, we're in that never-never period that the Wright brothers experienced between the time of their first flight and the time of their first contract. Uh, no one knows really how to do this well yet. And uh, that's, the, that's the stage we're in. Excellent. Okay, well, I think uh, Gene's probably gone now, but uh, we, we, you brought up a lot of points that I want to talk about. There, there's so many factors in farming, and I think a lot of people that aren't, <clears throat> let's say, used to that agrarian lifestyle um, think, oh, you know, I'm going to run out here and just start taking some pictures of this guy's rice, and, you know, he's going to want to throw thousands of dollars at me. <laughs> what do you say about that? He may want to throw something at you, but not dollars. Or uh, the, yeah, um, the the dollars don't get thrown about easily, as has been our experience. Um, this is not as easy as many people think. Uh, to fly dependably is is the first issue that you must be satisfied with. But beyond mm-hmm. that, acquiring scientific-grade orthorectified imagery that can be processed into a product that a farmer or a farm manager can really understand and act upon, uh, that's not easy. Uh, uh, there, there are quite a few people out there that, that say, well, we can fly and we can give you NDVI imagery. This is... Uh, 
for for your listeners, this is just a a simple arithmetic calculation involving the reflectance values of a couple of spectral bands from right. from uh, imagery that can be acquired. And uh, NDVI can tell you quite a bit about water and uh, uh, plant material on the surface of the ground. But right. it, it doesn't tell the farmer what the farmer's got to do next in terms of fertilizer or in terms of water application or in terms of pest management or a whole long list of things. NDVI is one of many possible intermediate calculations along the way to give the farmer information, actionable information, about those kinds of problem areas. And, and that's where we have focused. Uh, our, our shop is not interested in flying UAVs. Our shop mm -hmm. is interested in delivering actionable information to an end user. Well, you know, it sounds like, uh, you, do you listen to the podcast, or are we just, like, on the same wavelength? <laughs> because uh, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, actually, I, I hate to admit this, Patrick, but this is the first podcast I've listened to, but I'll have to go back and, and uh, catch up. Because, well, this is the, band, the drum I'm banging all the time. That's exactly, I mean, you know, some of the military projects, it's all actionable intelligence, right? And yeah. how does that kind of mesh with big data and people like, oh, you know, big data, there's tons of data. Okay, yeah, it's true. You can, you can have tons of data. There's, a, let's say, a value in a picture. There's a value in a picture that's got a timestamp. There's a value in a picture that's got a time and location. There's value in a picture. There's value in data. But what is that data? And, and you're hitting a point here. I mean, when I, when I was doing uh, this as a business, you go out and you maybe take some pictures and you could do some basic analysis for the farmer. But that may only be a one-time shot. I'm coming out there and I'm going to give you pretty pictures of your crops. Right. I think most people don't realize how in tune the farmers are with their own land. Well, and maybe you could speak to that. Absolutely, and they have to be because it is a d dynamic system. Things are changing out there. You want them to change. Uh, you want crops to uh, to uh, uh, grow and mature and get to a stage of harvest where where uh, the product is marketable at a quantity and price that that makes you some money, and. Uh, if you can't do that, then then you're not going to be a farmer for very long. Right. Uh, so the information that that a farmer needs is not a pretty picture. It is not even a a a map of uh, that 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 tells you NDVI or temperature distribution or anything like that. A farmer is going to need to know how much water should I send down this lateral tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. Uh, a farmer's going to want to know, uh, do I have, uh, what, what is the probability of an infestation of um, a, a certain blight on my grape vines, and, and where might that be, and, mm -hmm. and is it at a point where I need to jump on it today? Um, it's, and it's very dynamic, and, and those questions have to be continually asked and answered um, or you're not going to be a farmer for very long. And, and so UAVs and remote sensing applications of UAVs in agriculture are going to have to fit into that system. They will have to 
be one link in a in a large circle that ultimately delivers actionable information, not just pretty pictures. I absolutely agree, one hundred percent. That's uh, and that's another thing is uh, I think people don't realize they just think you know I'm going to buy this drone and I'm going to run out here and these farmers are just going to be beating down my door to give me money. And, and I think you hit on some of those points. It's like look, you're going to kind of have to learn your market. Learn the issues that are, are of value, what that actionable intelligence is that you're giving the farmer, how you're going to present it, what you're going to do, and how you're going to do it, and how he's going to, say, um, um, mitigate those issues that you're finding. Now. Uh, no, absolutely. The, the, the folks we are talking with right now, uh, those are the very questions they want answers to, and it is in that framework that they see the potential for UAVs, not just the pretty pictures, and, and not just a one-time deal. Uh, these things have to be inexpensive enough to fly frequently with gaps between flights filled by some fairly sophisticated modeling, which we also do here at, at the Utah Water Research Lab. Right. Now, and that's another thing that says near-infrared. You know, there's a hack where people will get their point-and-shoot and peel one of the filters off, and they get their, their kind of their near-infrared. Right. Now, <clears throat> there is no consistency between the different brands of camera, I hear. That's uh, right. And, that, and there's very little consistency. If I wanted to share my data with you, um, if, if you could really get, or let's say, ring out uh, of the data that I'm sending you because of the variations in these sensors. Is, is that true or false? Uh, everything depends on the sensor, and right. uh, this this is a real problem that we face in the small UAS industry right now. Uh, we there there are close to scientific grade cameras that we could fly that that would address much of the variability that that you mentioned uh, variability between different types of sensors. Uh, problem be, becomes one of cost and lack of spatial resolution and mm -hmm. um, uh, weight and power requirements and so forth. And so uh, we, we have a crying need right now for standardization of sensor types. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons that we've started to get involved in the design of our own sensors here at at the water lab as well. Um, uh, we, we don't need a big heavy camera, but we do need a camera that, that we know precisely what its spectral response looks like in each of exactly. a number of different bands. And with that, and with some field work for calibration and so forth, uh, then, then you know what you've got. Uh, one thing we have been able to determine is that for the cameras we use, uh, there there is um, dependability between cameras and uh, through time, mm -hmm. but uh, at least cameras of the same model type. Um, but uh, to go from this brand to that brand, then you start all over again. And, right, and right. So comparability is is an issue. Okay, well, let me ask you another question because I mean, you you know, we're throwing out, you know, some of the issues and some of the stumbling blocks that people that want to go do this are going to have to overcome. 
Um, you know, now, you know, you probably heard about this where the FAA said, oh, you know, that farmers can use, basically farmers can fly RC aircraft on their own farms, which to right. me is not really groundbreaking at all because they've always been able to do that. Anybody's able to do that. But let me just ask you, from your experience and in all of these obstacles that we've been talking about and, and issues to overcome and things like that, do you think, in your experience, that you're going to see, um, let's say, throngs of farmers running out, buying UAV systems and parts and all pieces and all the rest of this, and trying to cobble together systems and using them for these various crops? Um, I don't see that uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. I, I think probably you're uh, alluding to the 400-foot elevation ceiling cap. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Uh, at least that's one of the things you're, you're talking about here. And in our experience, 400 feet uh, will not cut it for right. any, uh, any except the very smallest farm. So, I don't know, maybe growers in Humboldt County would be happy, but outside of that, um, uh, you'd have to have very small plots for that 400-foot limit to... Uh, not provide some sort of stumbling block. Um, well, in our experience, we, we typically fly between 300 and 1,000 meters. Mm -hmm. And uh, that depends on what the required spatial resolution is and what our COA will authorize and so forth. But um, if, you're, if you're talking about large-scale agriculture, you're talking about a lot of land area. And you're not going to fly a little battery-powered hex rotor over 10,000 acres in a finite amount of time and deliver anything that is actionable. All right. Um, well, let's let's here because I got a couple of questions, and we're gonna we're gonna run long. Do you have time to stay on? Cause sure, I can stay with you as long as you like. Okay, this is this is this is always what happens. I mean, I've been doing this show for you know, about a year and a half. I'm like, wow, 45 minutes is a long time to fill, and we always get down to the wire. And when we, we're really starting to like drill down into the nitty gritty, and that's about right here at the two minute warning time. So we're just going to run <laughs> long on this. Okay. Um, now, you, you did hit on that the, the viability of that flight envelope. And, and I did want to get into that, and, and we will in a second. But I want to I want to go back to the farmer himself. I'm you know Farmer Brown, and I'm growing alfalfa, and the the notion that I'm going to go on the internet, cobble together my UAV, and learn all of this stuff, and make my near infrared camera, and all the rest of that, and start compiling my data, learning how to you know put this together, program it, fly it. And, and compile all that data. What do you think the chances from the farmers you know, how many people do you think are going to jump off and do that? Uh, there will be one or two hobbyists that just like the idea of flying uh, a camera duct tape to a wing to get pretty pictures. But in terms of developing hardcore actionable information, uh, this is way harder than it sounds. And okay. I, 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 there there. are there might be large corporate farm enterprises that would have the financial wherewithal to invest in the development of that, but um, they'd be smarter to look around for for somebody that's already done the research and um, and and purchase a product that 
has those capabilities. Uh, we're we're right. talking about uh, some really difficult things to do. Uh, a uh, capture of multispectral imagery involving two or three cameras at a minimum. That that is not easy, and orthorectifying the imagery from all of those cameras is not easy. Uh, you have to translate uh, the the imagery into reflectance values. Uh, mm -hmm. That is not easy, and there's no standard from one camera to the next. You have to know what you're doing there. Uh, there's additional on-the-ground field data you have to get to make to 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 acquire the information necessary to uh, uh, generate the reflectance values pixel by pixel. Um, and, and, and then at the end of that point, all you have is pretty pictures. You don't have an answer to any questions at all yet. So you have to analyze the data uh, in, the, in, in the imagery, the reflectance data and the thermal data, uh, in order to get information about evapotranspiration rates or about soil moisture or uh, about plant tissue nitrogen and so forth. And I don't see anybody doing that right now. Um, actually, anybody in the UAV industry right now other than ourselves. Well, and, and, and you're hitting on a point here because I do see, like, I see a business model. And now even those variations are going to, and those are going to all vary between crops. And, and I mean, I don't think there's, there's a lot of people in the, the drone world who, let's say, are, I see them as corner cutters. And there's like, say, a huge or a, a, um, a wide area of something that you've got to know about. Like a lot of people that are getting into the drone thing are not aviation people. So the whole aviation, let's say, part of this business is just beyond what they they don't even think about it it's out there they don't really think about it. i'm not going to think about that but what you're talking about here on the data is a steep learning curve so i do see a business model where you may have a guy uh and i kind of i call it almost like a pool route model i know farmers in my area and when i was doing this legally you know i would talk to people and i would i would have people that i would uh i could come out and take pictures for them but I would only have a limited amount of customers, and I did not drill down. I'll be the first to admit that I did not drill down the way you're talking about uh, and giving people this actionable intelligence to go out and use in the field. It was more of a pretty picture thing mm. um, and, you know, kind of novel and all the rest of that. But uh, what you're talking about is, is a steep learning curve for somebody. Oh, yeah. And, it's, it's not easy. No, and especially for someone in this, in, to get into this field who's just cobbled together a system. So I even think that the farmers are, you know, like you said, might get a guy or two, okay, this is really neat and I want to try this, but I really see it as a service-based industry. But what that does is it goes right back to the viability of the proposed flight envelopes. Yes, and, absolutely. And, you know, I was on these... That small U.S. arc, and we're waiting for that ruling to come out now. It's been God knows how many years. It's, it's, it's pathetic. But anyway, you know, when well, you start even, talking about... Even ahead. when it comes out, hopefully at the end of the month, uh, all, all we have is a start at that point. I think we're probably at least a decade away uh, from having an answer. To, uh, Are you trying to, to cheer question? up the listeners? <laughs> no. I'm trying to be realistic. I, th I think we will be living with something that looks a lot like our COA system. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully there will be bits and pieces of it that 
will be uh, a, a bit more tailored for the application at hand, and I'm hoping that agriculture will receive some uh, uh, benefit of knowledge of those who have been doing this for a while um, uh, in, in COA applications or whatever they will become in the future so that there will be more of this uh, uh, technology used in agriculture. But we're, we're just at the very beginning of that, and I don't right. see things changing rapidly um, uh, anytime soon. Well, that you know, I wrote another article about uh, kind of about some of these issues called "Down on the Farm with Drones," and you know, I do not see the economic viability of a 400 feet, 1500 foot lateral. Um, no. You know, maybe if you again we go back to the Humboldt um, <laughs> cash crop. That might work, but that's not really going to work here. And then the funny thing is, it's not even funny. It's just it's almost outlandish. As I will get calls. I get calls now. They won't hire me as a consultant, but they, they love to call me. You know, if you want to talk about commercial UAS use, call Patrick Egan. So I get the DOD vendors, and they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to get into ag. We're going oh, ag. Yeah. We're so green. I, I mean, I was joking at AUVSI. I mean, I'd have been standing out there in the overalls with the hat on and the, <laughs> the wheat stalk hanging out of my mouth. Yes, sirree. Um, but the thing with it is, it's like, if you think for one second, I mean, I, I you know, I tell these guys, you got to put your feet back on the ground here, buddy. Do you think you're going to get some farmer Brown is going to buy a million dollar UAV? Right. And he's going to fly to 400 feet, 1500 feet laterally. Even if they say <laughs> you could do it for a half a mile, this thing's going to be whipping around your head and you're never going to be able to, that thing would have to be in the air 24, seven, 365 to make sense because we could go out today and, and, and buy a 172 and screw all kinds of sensors on the belly of this thing and fly around and do whatever we want to do, and we'd only have to pay $50,000 for the aircraft. What, what do you say about that? Well, I, I think the entry level in this market is going to be at a fairly low capital investment cost, uh, and it will be for the large corporate farm, high-valued types of customers. It's not going to be flying at 400 feet. It's going to be flying at 1,000 meters or so. Uh, it's going to cost less than $50,000, and it'll have some pretty impressive sensors on it, some of which are not miniaturizable yet today, but will be in a few years. This is where we are going here at the Water Lab. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, all of that will eventually come together as and if uh, our, our regulations, our flight regulations, begin to uh, allow for it. And, and we will see benefits to agriculture, but uh, it's, it's not going to be 400 feet and, and so forth. It's, it's not going to be a camera duct tape to the bottom of a wing. It's, it's going to be something much more sophisticated. Um, it's not going to be a military aircraft. It's not going to be a million-dollar man. Uh, the hard part is figuring out how to build a small UAV that packs the scientific punch that is needed. Any idiot with a million dollars can get a UAV to do it. Uh, and and those those aren't exactly flying off the shelf right now. So no no. Uh, and, you know I, I I love these conversations. Now um, you know I want to hit on one thing because you're you're in the academic world here, 
And yeah. you know, this is this is one I hear all the time. Oh, we've got to have STEM education. You know, I gotta have some STEM. We gotta need some STEM. Okay, great. I agree. I love STEM. I think it should be STEAM. You should add art in there. Yada yada. But where you know, I want to get up on the top of a building and yell, where are the damn STEM jobs? Okay? And these type, this type of technology and the stuff that you're doing there, like you said, if we, if we had some regulation that made sense, you're opening up these huge, um, let's say, new fields or augmenting existing industries with these types of engineering type jobs. And I, and I say that possibly, or, or more likely in the future, an engineer, the problem that the engineer may need to figure out is his own financial well-being or job. Any um, comments on that? That's pretty much how it is today, as a matter of fact. <laughs> See? Um, uh, especially given the, the economic downturn over the last five or six years, it's, it's been tough across all professions. Uh, engineering has, has been seriously hit. For the first time ever, our, our graduates at master's and Ph.D. level have had a challenge finding a job. And uh, uh, this is beginning to lighten up a little bit, but I think will become a fact of life. This is going to be uh, the new operating uh, mode. And uh, you better be careful what you choose to be when you grow up. And... Uh, Looking at opportunities in areas that are going to be expanding, uh, that could be a smart choice to make. Um, I, I, I've got to hope that this is one such area. Uh, we're, I mean, we're investing heavily in this, uh, not only not only 